0: Firstly, I just want to um, thank this church um, for uh, what happened um, during the death of my father. Um, you really see community come out in its glorious best, op- and when things like events like this hit. And um, the prayers and the concern from people in this church, um, even though you sort of go underground for a while with your family. Let me assure you—you you can feel it. and You know that it's working because even now, as I'm out the other sort of, out the other side of the event, um, I just cannot believe I survived it. Um, I'll be honest—I'd been dreading this this day for a long time um, because Dad had been ill for a while. And it's interesting uh, with uh, with our, uh, our beliefs as a Christian. Um, You get all these scriptures like death is swallowed up in victory and death, you know, where's your victory and the the sting of death and all this sort of thing. And it's interesting as you head into events like this sometimes, you know all the things you should believe and then you've also got your emotions. And what I was a little worried about was would my emotions believe that stuff? Because it's all right to say it when everything's fine. And the reason I want to say this is because everyone in this room is going to walk through this a few times. And um, I will go through it again and probably another five or six times. And um, so that's what... Um, I don't know, if, you, you know you, if you've thought the same thing too, but for me, I was nervous. Would my emotions believe that death has no sting? And I, from walking through this, I can absolutely assure you that... For those who are a little nervous of this, um, that Christ has transformed death. And I could never say this before because nothing in my really tight circle had this happened to. And, um, and, I, and, the, and the further I get from the event, too, the more, in, when you're in hindsight, you start to see um, uh, some of the experiences you went through. And I realised that through my dad's death, there was no fear, there was an absence of fear and an absence of hopelessness. Now I've, from my work in um, doing heaps, of, also in the rehab world, but also in, as a musician in the club world, I've been to funerals of people in, in the club world and believe me, I was, when I went to those funerals, there was greater pain for me inside that environment because there was hopelessness there. Now, in my father's situation, there was no hopelessness. And it was a pleasant surprise. Like I said, as I walked in this, I didn't know what my emotions were going to do. But it's really true. Christ has conquered death. Um, and the other thing that, it's, that stood out to me was if this is the real power of Christianity, um, I think um, to think what, uh, that, that it's all about what it does to people's lives, I think we're missing a little bit. It's actually... What it does to people's deaths where christianity really shines and if you look at the world and you think where is christianity winning well i'll tell you when you get to this door that all of us are going to go through you will see christianity come to its best because nothing touches it when it gets because death is the big thing that you know it's the um the end stop that if what can't pass that can't pass life and i used to um uh, you know, especially with working in, in a place like Teen Challenge and stuff, often we're always get, getting testimonies of how God's changed people's lives. And I've had I, I've had calls from guys from the centre after they've left and ring up. And remember this one guy ring up and saying, "I'm sort of into Buddhism and New UH, Age," and he goes, "It's it's really working for my life." And I didn't doubt him. And um, and he was going on, and I could see his life was somewhat better. And then I asked him this one question. I still remember it. I was on the phone, down in my little unit. I said, just tell me, um, can it face off with death, Ryan? Silence on the other phone. And I got a bit loud. I said, can it face off with death? And still silence. And eventually he admitted that what he was into may have been giving him some good life, but it couldn't pass the big one. And this is... This is the powerhouse of Christianity. This is what Christ came to to change. Um, uh, This is from Romans 5, 20 um, and 21. It says, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, before the cross, sin used to reign in death. That's... See, why everything's different was that had been taken away from my father. In the past, sin could take you after the point of death. No longer has. And that's why there is such hope. Now, like I said, I've been to to funerals of non-believers and the intensity of the hopelessness, I was bawling on... I was crying on a level I never did at my own father's funeral because hopelessness was rife in the air. And I had someone grab my arm at at the gravesite and say, tell me I will see him again. And I said, that's the question you need to get answered in this life. And I never had that with my father. I've always known, and even right now, there's a sense of his aliveness. That's how I know the resurrection is true because I actually, I'm experienced and I know it's true. And there's nothing to fear from death. It's not to say that we just treat life, Casually, but I'm just saying, like, Christ, did, all this stuff you read about is true, and I can only say it now for the first time because it, it got really close inside my world. And if you want to just a picture of how, what Christ has done, imagine it's like he's gone and he's got the grim reaper. And he's, he said, come, you know, it's like he said, come over here and, you, you know, get your hoodie off. Give, it, give us your sickle. And Christ then dresses this fella up. And like a concierge outfit, and gives him a cap. And then he basically says, go welcome my children home. That's what Christ has done to death. Now, that's why Christianity isn't just a a thing to give you a happy life. It probably will for some. For others, it'll get you killed. But ultimately, you are all going to face off. See, if death wins, what's the point of life? If the end equation is zero, it matters not what numbers come before it. If it's forced to equal zero, nothing matters. But what if it's a door? See, that's when it all changes. And this, I've never appreciated the resurrection more um, than at this point in my life because I know that I know that it's true. Simply because right now as I talk to you, I sense my Father's aliveness and there's utter hope. Yes, in the emotion of the moment, it, it arrests you. But as I look back, I go, I realize there was no fear and no hopelessness. And that makes all the difference in the world. Um, So anyway, I I wanted to say that because I know there's got to be people out there that listen to me now that that are thinking the same thing. But let me just assure you that Christ has conquered all and that the resurrection is phenomenal. As uh, Joseph Ratzinger says in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ opened up a new space for us creatures. And just the word to use, I, I can't recommend that. I read it all the way through the darkest times with that and with going through the stuff with my dad and it was just, made me so excited about the resurrection because it's really done something. It's not just Christian talk. Um, so anyway, um, I just want to say that first. So this, this, the, again, the topic uh, assigned to me today is discipleship. And um, this word uh, means different things to different people. Um, some people think it's sort of like, just sounds like sort of what they did in ancient times, sort of thing, don't really care too much about it. Um, others want nothing to do with it because um, they either think it's too intrusive, I don't like people in my personal space, or they think, or oh, they've been burnt by it. Um, now, the important thing, if you have been burnt by discipleship thing, just remember you can't judge the value of something by its abuse. Now, if, just because there's been bad. Pastors, priests, and popes doesn't mean you throw everything out. It, you, you, you just don't do it. It's, we often do that. As soon as we see an abuse somewhere, we go, "That's it." You know, imagine if we did that with marriage. You know, oh, some marriages are abusive, so let's get rid of the thing altogether. You don't do that. It's still valid. Um, so the disciples. So if you have been burnt for by it, what you need to do is get a perspective change in what it, discipleship really is. And to others, discipleship means nothing at all. It's just that it 's just a, a word that doesn 't hold much meaning, so there 's no emotions get stirred at all. Now, the three angles I want to take with it is um, one, of course, the biblical perspective, two, as an observer, because my dad, as uh, Sandy had said, was heavily involved with the discipleship movement when it came to Australia, and the third is being an insider, being involved with this through uh, Teen Challenge. Um, and um, what it looks like in the intense world that when you're right inside it all the time. So getting back to the biblical perspective, what did Jesus do? He chose what? Twelve disciples. Jesus kicked this whole thing off with discipleship. Have you ever thought about that? that was the first thing he did. So I think that in itself is a bit of a key to us repositioning this word to um, but, you know, to, to welcome it back, if you think it's not important anymore, don't forget this is where Jesus started. Um, and what did these disciples do, of Jesus do? They followed. So if you want a really simple, uh, you know, one simple definition of discipleship, it's simply, the um, discipleship process, simply helping people to follow Jesus. Just from what we read there in the um, and what we see Jesus do now—the two levels of discipleship Jesus practiced—he had two groups. He had the twelve, which he chose, and there are a lot of other followers that hung around with those as well. It wasn't just—it um, was, it wasn't just always twelve people with him. There was people that came and went, and there was uh, a lot that tagged along. And then you have the three. So these two areas—I'm going to split up into two things. You have general. Discipleship, which you get with the twelve, and then you have specific, which you get with the three. Now, in the in the three was Peter, James, and John. They were the three that that um, Jesus really targeted. But the rest was uh, you, you was uh, like a general discipleship. Now, in general discipleship, there's I've just split it up into a couple of two like five categories here. Um, the first one I put out here is moral teaching. Now. Um, Jesus didn't, just, um, Jesus didn't just, you know, say, just love, love, love. He actually said some pretty, he gave love some boundaries. Um, now, if you look at Matthew 5, this is an amazing, the whole of the chapter is amazing, actually. I'll just read, this is well known, everyone has heard these before, but think of this as a new moral code that Jesus is releasing on the world. This is his first sermon, and he says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward and, um, is great in heaven. Um, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, can you see, if you just get the whole picture of even that, those, those uh, verses there, it's setting up a picture of humility, isn't it? How many times? Like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is a complete reversal of the code of what the Romans did. The meek don't inherit anything. But what's interesting is what Christianity did to the Roman Empire within the next hundred years. This meekness took them down. And now you think of Christ on a cross. Have you ever seen a weaker picture? Who's really strong? Is it the soldier that puts the nail in or Christ who can sit there and take it? You see where everything gets reversed? And this is what... um, Christ, what he, he releases here as a whole, this is moral teaching, um, the whole chapter. I'll just read out just the, 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 t- the subtitles. Um, the next lot's are about salt and light. Um, the next bit talks about how Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Then he goes into a section about anger. Then he does a section on lust. Then he does a section on divorce. Then he does a section on oaths. Then he does a section on retaliation, and then he finishes with about loving your enemies. This is some pretty serious moral teaching. I, I dare us to go home and read that. Often I think we, we read the Bible through our own denominational lenses, and we just cross out a bunch of stuff, because it doesn't really work with us. But if you just pretend you didn't just read it raw and see what it says, and you're going to find that Jesus is very confronting with some of the stuff he says in there. He doesn't go easy on lust. He even says that if so as you think in your heart, so you've done it. You know what I mean? Like he's upped it from the from what the law of Moses. He's actually brought it into the mind. So Jesus had some really strict things to say on moral teaching. Again, the message of humility comes out everywhere, and it, just the Sermon on the Mount is a message of humility. But even himself, you know, he said. To, he said, um, to take his, yoke upon, take his yoke upon you, for he is meek and lowly of heart. Jesus wants to yoke you with humility, because you're not going to get anywhere in the Christian faith without humility. It's the foundational thing that lets you even... I mean, think about it. If you don't admit you're a sinner, how can you even get into it? You know what I mean? You, you, there's a first step where you humble yourself and say, I am a sinner. Without that, Christianity is, is a, is, is a weird-looking thing. Humility actually gives you the eyes to start to see it. And if you wonder why it does look weird for you, I'd assess where your pride is and what it's told you about how good you think you are. Um, Jesus teaches on grace and truth. Now, this story is well known. Um, This is from John 8, 3 to 11. It says, The scribes of the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, um, placing her in the midst um, they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now the law um, now the law moses commanded us in the law moses commanded us to stone such a woman what do you say um, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him jesus bent down wrote with his finger in the ground and as they continued to ask him he stood up and said to them let him who is without a sin among you cast the throw the first stone at her and, and once more he bent down and rode in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Uh, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Now, often that last line gets left off. We just do the first bit. See, what Jesus is doing is giving us grace and truth offered on the same plate. They're not like this and one and you weigh them like this. They come on one plate. Grace and truth come together. Um, See, the truth is sin kills and Jesus wants us to stop it. That's the bottom line. That's the truth. Now, his grace is giving you strength to not do it. Do you see how that works? It's not just, oh, it's just all grace. It can't, if we... If that ever happened in a rehab, just that it doesn't matter what you do, the place would go nuts. You can't do that. You have to actually lay down the goodness of the laws of God because they simply work. Selfish people wreck stuff. <laughs> they wreck relationships. They wreck marriages. They wreck rehabs. It just doesn't work. So you, you don't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. Grace will cover you. It says, no, grace will give you the strength not to be like this. So Jesus teaches us in his moral teaching, gives us grace and truth. And separating those always causes disasters. Um, The next little category i got here is good advice. Um, Jesus says this, uh, I mean, this is a well-known one, we quote it a lot, but if you think this sounds unusual that the Son of God said this, he goes, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Basically, Jesus is saying, Pursue the innocence and uh, and pursue innocence and and um, and what is pure and right, but at the same hand, don't be stupid. Like so often Christians do some of the most idiotic things, especially in public um, when they're asked to give statements about things, there's just there's there's uh, there's an ignorance there that's embarrassing. And it's because Jesus is saying, don't do that. Know what you're, you ever, the fact that he's used the word serpent, you ever seen this, snakes are always checking stuff out. They don't just war around. They're always they're looking, they're taking in their environment. Because, and Jesus said, is saying to us, be, don't be stupid. Look at the world you're in and what's going on. And understand, um, um, if you want to engage with it, start, you know, I'm often, often amazed how often people grab things that worked like a hundred years ago and think this will always be it. And they're not understanding where the culture has shifted. And um, it, again, this is what Jesus is saying: "Wise up! Don't be an, don't be an idiot." <laughs> um, there's another one that's uh, it's an it's quite an unusual story. Um, and this is the shrewd manager. Like I don't even know what to make, make of this. It says there was a there was a rich man who had a manager, and and charges were brought against him that this man was wasting his possessions. So he called him and said unto him, um, "What is this that you, that I hear about you? Turn the account of your management, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And the manager said to himself, "What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am um, not strong enough to dig, and I'm not, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've have decided what I'll do, so that I'm not removed from management. People um, and people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe your master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest, so he's admitted he is dishonest, manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Again, I think Jesus is saying, you you, you don't have to. um, uh, You can. It's not unbiblical to 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 have a shrewd attitude to life, not just to blindly. (laughs) I I know there's so many. um, There's actually people's faces come to my mind which I can't um, really talk about when when I read that sort of read this sort of scripture. But isn't that unusual? This is coming from Jesus himself. the other section I got here is theology. Um, Jesus opened up the truth about the Trinity. Um, the first sign we had of it was in Genesis, where Moses is writing stuff he doesn't even understand. He says it talks about um, how God made the, you know, let us make man in our own image, and he's using a plural, and Moses is not even really understanding what he's writing, but he's writing down what God told him to write. And here we get to the New Testament, and Jesus at last reveals who the other what's going on here. He reveals himself as the Son, and he speaks of the Father all the time. Um and the Holy Spirit. And all this appears at his baptism right at the beginning. Do you remember the scene? Um, The voice comes from heaven. This is my Son. And then um whom I'm well pleased. And then also here's the Son here's they hear the voice of God, the Son is there, and then a representation of the Spirit coming like a dove. All three arrive at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, so Jesus is preaching theology. Um, he calls himself the resurrection and the light and the life. Um, he made statements like this Be- before Abraham was, I am, which at that moment made people wildly angry because of what that was saying. He was he was clearly identifying himself with the divine, with the God of the universe. And that was no small statement in that culture. Um, and again, the funny thing is, Jesus was actually killed for theology. And I think, unfortunately, Christians have taken that to heart a lot more than they should over the, over the years. But that's the truth. He was killed because of the Son of God claim. That's what brought him... Before That's what um, the, uh, the Jewish leaders... Uh, that, that was the end charge in the end. All the others were just... They, they didn't stand. Um, the other thing is, uh, general discipleship will involve offense. Um, check this one out. I, I used to avoid telling people about this scripture for years. So Jesus said to them Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God, of Son of Man, and drink his blood, you, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever drinks my flesh and drink uh, whoever drinks my flesh feeds on my flesh and drinks my um, blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me I live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me this is the bread that has come down from heaven like not like the bread of the fathers fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? A little bit further down it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, There was around 70 people that heard this message and most of them left. Jesus doesn't seem too concerned about racing after all these people and chasing them down. He just let this mysterious truth sit on their ears. And he didn't, you know... He didn't come up in there and say, "Look, look, it's only just symbolic. Don't worry, don't worry." He didn't do any of that. Let it happen, which in itself is saying a lot. And the other thing is too. I think the sad thing is um, when he said, "To whom else shall we go?" I think one of the, you know, not everything that happened at the Reformation was great. And one of the sad things that happened is the splitting of church authority. Because you know what? Now, when people get offended and you go, "To whom else shall you go?" You know what they do. Down the road, next church. They'll marry me. They'll do this. They'll do that. That's just simply what's happened. I've seen it even happen in this church. People have not liked the message, and they go. Just down the road. Who else do you go? Well, somewhere else. But again, we got to... Jesus is not afraid of offence, if it's true. Then he also calls people vipers. How's that? Imagine if Sandy got up one morning and calls all a bunch of snakes. You know, <laughs> I'm sure he won't, but... Uh, or well, maybe we'll if we don't do the biblical counselling, but um, you know what I mean. Like Jesus is not afraid to go after um, people's motives, and he's, he called people a bunch of vipers. You know, so he, he, again, if we, I think some of the vision, ver, the the ideas we have of Christ, we we make him into something we like, but he is totally no. What you just won't trap this. You won't trap him. He's far bigger. Um, the last little category I put in here was warnings. Jesus warned about hell. In Matthew 10, 28, he, took, he warned us about persecution. said, it's going to happen. And all around the world, I'm sure the, the persecuted church in Indonesia and, and in Islamic countries know this to be true. Jesus warned us, said this, don't be surprised when they come and lay hands on you and persecute you. Um, he warned us about causing others to sin. And he also warned us that unless we become like children, this kingdom of his is not open to you. Now, just think about it. There's some pretty serious warnings. So, what's. It's not like Jesus asking us to be, you know, immature like a child, but he's asking for the same type of trust that children have, which is what I think thrills parents about kids is that beautiful, simple trust. So, that's the. And, of course, I have to add this point. In general, disciples says Jesus pushed the point of prayer. He did it so much that they asked him how to do it. And that's when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus was always praying. Always. It's the foundational thing to the Christian life is prayer. Absolutely. It even comes before the Bible, in a sense, because... It's not saying you neglect it, but prayer is the first thing. Because there are plenty of people, I know atheists who read the Bible, but what they can't do is pray. So not just, uh, the, 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 it must go with it. But prayer is number one, because a lot of places, there is no access to the Word of God, but what they do have is prayer. No one can take that off you. Now, so that's general discipleship. So general discipleship is not narrow and it's not skin deep. It involves moral teaching, good advice, theology, offence, and warnings. This is not my opinion. This is straight from the Bible. I didn't make this up. If some of this sounded difficult, this is not my gig. This is Jesus did all this stuff. So what effect did general discipleship have? All those disciples were tortured and died for this. Now, I would say that got in pretty deep, wouldn't you? Think about it at the moment. Sometimes when I hear testimonies of what the persecutors' church is enduring right now, I wonder whether I could go through that. Um, So discipleship produces the type of people that will die for their faith because that's what all the disciples ended up doing except for one. Um, Now, the next category is specific. This is close-up stuff. Now, we don't know a lot of the specific words that Jesus spoke to Peter, James, and John, but we know of specific circumstances that occurred where he very clearly singled these three out. Um, the three I've got here is the raising of the daughter of Jairus in uh, Mark 5. It says this, And he allowed no one to follow except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion and people were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? This child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, Um, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and and those who um, were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one was to know this and told them to give her something to eat. Isn't amazing. These are other things about Jesus. Someone's been raised from the dead, and he says, Don't tell anyone. I don't know about you, but if that ever happened here, I'd find it very hard not to go tell everyone. You know, like again, Jesus surprises us with the way he with the things he requests. But again. These three were singled out for this amazing event. He just takes Peter, James, and John and leaves the others out. Which is... And the other one, of course, uh, major thing is the transfiguration. Now, this is a huge event. Um, it says, six days after Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up, um, the, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone, shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light." And behold, there appeared to them Moses, Elijah, uh, talking with him. Peter said uh, to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, we will make three tents here, and uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I think Peter was just overwhelmed. He started saying crazy stuff. But anyway, um, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well. Please listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, "Rise and have no fear." And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down off the mountain, Jesus commanded them, "Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead." It's again this thing where Jesus is—I don't know why he does—he said, "Don't tell anyone this." But this is an extraordinary event. You think about it; it was so extraordinary they were terrified. This is not just some mild meeting. they saw something uh, Christ was transfigured before him and next' thing, these two these two heroes of the of um, the Jewish world appear there and they know instantly who they are, which uh, in, uh, as a side point goes to show you that your true identity is not in your physical makeup there's something at the heart of you that identifies who you really are they'd never seen emojis and, and Elijah. and Moses and Elijah they just but they knew it was them. They were identified by the, their core being. So, um, sorry for Hollywood that invests so much in the external. You don't, you're not identified by that anymore. Um, the, uh, and the last thing is the agony of Gethsemane. This scene, now, these disciples weren't too much used to Jesus in this darkest hour, but he chose them nevertheless, singled them out again and took with him to Jesus' darkest moment. It says, uh, Jesus taken with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began, um, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very um, sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the, these disciples weren't great support them, but there was still something that Jesus took them to his darkest moment. There were still those three people with him. Um, now, just looking at these three men uh, quickly, um, what's unique about them? Well, Peter, there's no... Um, there's no problem seeing what a significant figure he is in the New Testament. It was to Peter that the, that the Holy Spirit revealed Christ's full title, which is, you are the Christ, Son of the Living God. That whole title was uh, that was given to Peter. Um, others had seen parts of it, um, but at that point, Jesus it's when Jesus says, you know, who do you say they am? And, so, and Peter says this, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That is a big thing, the fact that the Holy Spirit... Um, Peter Peter was also instructed in the role of shepherd and leader when Jesus said three times specifically to him, feed my lambs. If you read that the story is in in John 21, 15, Um, it's worth reading because at the end of that, um, I might even have it here. Yeah, it says, when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Son, um, son of Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lands. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said um, to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, your strength, um, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not wish, want to go. Um, after this, um, saying he said to him, Follow me. And Jesus turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, that no one, um, and the one who had been reclined at the table close to him. So there's this specific job that is given here to Peter. To feed my lands, he didn't say that to others. Um, it was Peter who preached the first message at Pentecost, um, and also now that, you, that the other, the other uh, disciple John, Peter and John did a bucket load of stuff together too. They um, they were the ones that made the preparation for the Passover as Peter and John, um, though I think they were also the first to be in prison. So these men are significant in amongst the uh, the others. Now John, he was more the, he was the mystic, and that and he was many times it said that it was a disciple that Jesus loved. He had insight that the other gospel writers didn't have. That's why his gospel is unique from the other three. And if if you read it, John has this. John connects us to. Um, the infinite side of God, when He opens up with His, with his, in John, in the first chapter of, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John is, is is bringing us to concepts that the other three just didn't ever go near, and it comes all the way through his gospel as well. There's so much um, mysterious stuff in John. Um, John gave us the the record, the famous words of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Um, these were all. Uh, unique sayings that um, I think uh, the, the um, John's position in that three enabled him to write this stuff. Again, uh, uh, Jesus committed his mother to John as well at the cross. You know, at the end there was only John and Mary there, and Jesus said, "Behold, your mother" to John, and um, which is uh, you know causes many great discussions. But there's no doubt about the importance of. Here's these two figures. Everyone had left, and there was only those there at the cross. Um, now, James, we don't know a whole lot about, other than that he was a fervent follower of Christ, and he was the first disciple to be martyred. Um, we don't know a whole lot, much more about him. And again, what did discipleship do for these three guys? I think we're fairly confident to say, maybe we could say what would happen if they weren't discipled in this specific way. I don't think we'd have... the I don't think we'd have the Gospel of John um, the way it is. I think they needed that specific stuff for the jobs that they were going to go on to do. Now, this is the big uh, to finish this section. This is the the uh, um, the famous scripture from Matthew twenty eight uh, regarding discipling of nations and stuff. It says, "Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had had directed them, and he and when he saw and when they saw him." Um, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to, him, said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, ob- teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So here's the bottom line. Jesus is into discipleship majorly. Um, it's how he operated, his whole ministry was on the basis of this. Now, this comes to a little point with us. Now, there's we often people go, Well, why can't just Jesus disciple me? I don't need anyone else. Just just me and Jesus. This whole just me and Jesus thing is a complete myth. Um, see, the shock is God doesn't directly deal with this all the time. If you don't believe this, look at your own life. The life that you have now sitting in that chair looking at me, did God directly create it or did he move it through your parents? See, he didn't directly do it. His grace moved through someone else to give you the very life that you have sitting in that chair right now. And that's often a shock to us. We think, um, uh, you know, it's just me and God. No, it's not. It's you and the community. It's you and others. Um, you think of it how, do, how, does, how does God show kindness to us physical beings well I've never received a physical hug from Jesus but I have from my friends especially going through this crisis I needed their physical Jesus was getting to me through them and this is the same with, with charity you know it, um, it, it, it's, it needs us to give real things that make it work. Jesus just doesn't do it. He does it through. And this model goes through absolutely everything. Um, You even think of even this message. You're not just, it's going through sound depressions. It's weird to think of it. But your, your spirit is hopefully being nourished, not directly from, he's using physical things, goes in through your ear to get to your spirit. It's always going through. It doesn't come straight into your spirit. And this is, the, this is the type of world you really live in. And I, I think uh, the more we respect that, the more um, maybe social justice would take on different meanings for people if they saw it's just not always you know, relegating things to just spiritual. It's a, it's a combination. It's like God needs the spiritual, the, the physical to do stuff to your spirit. It really, it, it's, um, this is the reality we live in. So when it comes to discipleship, it's going to happen practically through other people. You're not just going to go, oh, I'll just get discipled by Jesus at home. That's just not the way, that's not the principles he set up that, that run this universe, this world. It's through. Now, the reason we don't like it is because you have to be vulnerable then, don't you? That's why we fight that. No, just me and Jesus. But soon, the, the, the otherness is actually, our, it's our pride getting in the way. and that no one's going to find out about that. You know, it's, it's us wanting control again because as soon as it gets out into the bigger circle, you lose a bit of control. So just in summary, um, you've got the two levels, general and specific. Now, it's fair to say general discipleship is a requirement. Now, somebody probably mightn't say this, but I, would, I, can, <laughs> I can say this because I'm not the leader, but <laughs> you must go to church. That's the—that's what you can't discipleship doesn't happen by yourself, and Jesus is into discipleship. So, category one, you have to do it. I mean, I don't know what other ways. I hope this is Christ's idea, not mine. Um, so, as far as general discipleship goes, that's, I, I believe it's a requirement, but specific specific is necessary for some. Not everyone, just like when you look at the 12 disciples, Bartholomew wasn't specifically um, discipled like Peter, James and John. Now, if you are a person that needs specific, you better do it because you're going to run into trouble. You are not going to reach the the places God has for you. Uh, And and again, thinking of of all the, the years at the rehab, those guys specifically need discipleship. They can't get free of their addiction any other way. They need to be discipled in that manner. So you can't go up to... Like I suppose the practical outworking would be what it looks like in this church would be um, this meeting like this is general, but your home groups straddle both sides. They sort of... They're general, but they also move into specific as well where certain people will be singled out and you ask those questions, how are you really going? And that happens in and uh, can happen in a home group. And then from there, often, certain friendships are formed which then um, get really close. Now, that's just the, the, uh, the, the way I see it with just the practical outworking of it. Um, so being involved in the church is, in, in this is, I think, Jesus is pushing that very strongly. But the next home groups are dead, <laughs> really important too. Um, I've just been given the sign that we need to stop um, so, ten or what would? Ten me Okay, okay. Just quickly, the last two points I had was an observer. Now, like I said, my dad was involved with the discipleship movement when it first came to Australia, and again, lots of mad stuff happened. But what I can say with God and with, with about my dad and this and the whole movement was, even though crazy stuff happened with the church. Um, what I saw him run in his world was the good stuff. And all my memories of just the young fellas in that group that he was given, um, that he spent all this time with, um, I even noticed at his, at his funeral, a lot of them came back and we hadn't seen him for 10 years and they were all there. You know, And you're thinking, this effect he had on their life, through. Um, um, he did it well. And he was... He was a friend to them more than a guru. Do you understand? If, if he, he hated that. I mean, I remember once when they they kept on saying they wanted to put all the the leaders up on the stage all the time, so people go, you know, the, here here are they. You know, sort of. Then Dad used to call it sitting on the perch, and he and he ate and he ate it, and he just didn't want to do it because he just thought they're making. We need to be friends with these people, not just act as if we're some guru who knows everything. So. What I saw my dad do, it really worked. It had a deep effect on me too because the household, the community from which this discipleship happened, um, I've got some of the best memories of those times. They were like a home group thing and they, we met together all the time. Um, because we're on a farm, we'd often have you know, like volleyball and cricket together on Saturdays and there would be, um, and then all the midweek meetings. And it was just the best environment to grow up in. You know, so A lot of the kids... All us kids would be in some rooms sometimes, which would get a bit feral, but um, the, the community even of all those friends that you met in that world was just wonderful. I've they've remained friends to this day. Um, so as an observer, I can vouch that this it really does work from watching what happened with my dad. Um, and the other area was being a participant in it. Um, the rehab process is nothing but discipleship. Because you think about it, if Jesus, if I'm like seventy percent of the people that arrive at Teen Challenge are already Christians, so what's the problem? If they just got Jesus, why can't they work this out? Why do we? Why do they have to go there? Because God works through, and they need discipleship. So discipleship is their out. It's 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 the only way they're going to get better. Um, and here's the the last controversial fact: is this. Men need discipleship more than women do. Now, it's it's chauvinist to say it, but this is true. Men are the main stuffer uppers of the world. Who does 99.99% of the rapes? Who does all the 90% of the domestic violence? Who does 90% of all? Um, look at all your uh, hideous dictators throughout history. Who? Are, what? What gender are they? See, by nature, God has given to men a type of power that's real. And when it goes bad, they do far more damage than what, than what women do. Now, the thing is, I've seen this all the time at the rehab as well, heaps of these guys have got children. Now, what's even if the mother is even stuffed up on drugs as well, often the, the instinctual thing for motherhood that God has put inside a woman Still can't be turned off in the hall amongst that depravity, and there's still a. It's always the guy that leaves. Ninety-nine percent of the time, it's the guy that leaves, not the girl. There's there's an instinct thing that God has put there that keeps her fa- That that makes her you know remain somewhat faithful. Like I said, it doesn't doesn't. It's not hundred percent, but generally that's the that's the truth. But guys. Manhood is something you have to be taught. It's like an apprenticeship. You don't just naturally have it. You only got to watch what has happened with our society to know that men need training. Like all these guys at the rehab, it usually sits on 97% are fatherless. Now, these poor single mothers are doing their best, but it ain't enough. Because why would our stats show this? There's no men anymore. And because when men aren't example to the next generation of men, they act like boys for the rest of their life. They never make it through. Discipleship is, is absolutely critical for men. Because it's, think of it like doing an apprenticeship. When I did my apprenticeship, my boss's skill got into me by being near him all the time. When he was on the lay, I was next to him, watching him. And what he did you know mysteriously got transferred into me but i was with him i wouldn't have got my trade if i wasn't close to my boss he 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 got the trade into me he taught it to me now did i have desires for it before i did it yeah i just didn't have it so you'll get plenty of guys that want to be men but they have to do the apprenticeship to get it and if you haven't got great male role models then you just search for it anywhere and that's where it gets absolutely, that's what breaks my heart at the center is, 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 is watching for years, This the fatherlessness every single time. As soon as I ask the question, I, I, I always can guess the words that are going to come out of their mouth. Um, so that's about all I have to say. Um, Whatever got, again, I don't know what category you're going to fit into, but there is going to be some practical outworking of this message. Either you're going to say, yep, I need to commit myself to this church a bit more, this is important to be disciple here, or you're, you're going to say, no, I need to move into a home group thing. And some of you are going, I need to find a, 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 another, especially for the men, a, a young men, a, a guy that's going to disciple me. And... Don't let this just sit and go, oh, nice message today. If this doesn't turn out practical, there is no point in even doing these things. It's got to convert into your livable lives, not just the church one you do here. You don't just go, oh, that was was rather interesting. Um, Let it translate out into your commitment to the church, your home groups, and seeking out um, discipleship.